So if you've been in church at all, or maybe you haven't been in church, that you know the story of Joshua is like, the, the story is Joshua is always linked to the walls of Jericho, right? Like there was always that little song that the walls came tumbling down. Um, growing up Catholic, man, we would sing that song. So Joshua was always linked to Jericho and the mighty walls that came tumbling down where they walked around the city for seven days and then the walls fell. And so what I want to do today is I want to take you a little bit further than that story, right? I want to go a little bit heavier into that. Like if you were to open your, your Bibles, this won't be on the screen, but in Joshua chapter 11, in Joshua chapter 12, it tells you everything that Joshua did in seven years. It's, it's unbelievable. Just to give you a little side, it says, So Joshua took the entire land, the hill country of the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills of Arabah, the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal-Gad, the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country from Hebron, Deber, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, from the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel, in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And the land had rest from the war. He did that in seven years. In chapter 12, it goes on to tell you all the kings that he defeated. Right? Much larger than Jericho, he defeated 31 of them. 31 kings in seven years. And so the question is not, why did this happen? Like, we know the why. We know why it happened, because God had promised this land to Abraham. Right? You can track this story all the way through. If you walk into Exodus, the Lord says, listen, I'm tired of these people living in this land, and I'm fixing to vomit them out. But he says, Joshua, I'll do the same to you if you choose to walk away from me. I'll vomit you out. And so that's the why. Today I want to walk on the how. Like I want to kind of walk us through how did this happen? And what if I was to say to you that what happened here can happen here? Right? The principle is the same. It hadn't changed. It's the same story. And so as we get into that, I want to put a map up here on the wall, and I want to show you um, how this happened, right? So if you're looking at this story, like if you see the big word that says Gilead on the right-hand side of the screen, right to the left of that, you're going to see a little river, okay? It's called the River Jordan. Now, the word tells us in this that at this time, the river's at flood stage, meaning that it's out of its banks and it's starting to water the land. They, They did this every year. And so it says that Israel was camped there near Gilead and that they were going to cross this Jordan River and all of that land to the left was the land God had promised them, right? Promised them then, promised them now, yeah? And so here's what happens. So I'm going to kind of fast forward through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. The Lord shows up to Joshua and he says, listen, if you will be strong and courageous in all the things that I've taught you to do and not veer to the left or right of them, but actually do them, I will give you all of this land as promised to your father Abraham. All of this land to the left-hand side is yours. I'll give it to you. And so the deal is that Joshua does this. He stays firm. And so they get up one morning and the Lord said, prepare everybody for three days. Like consecrate them, like be holy. Like, don't do anything against my laws. Like, be holy for these three days. And he says, now load up the ark and start crossing the Jordan River. 
And it said as soon as they crossed the Jordan at its flood stage, it said as soon as their foot hit the water, the water began to recede. And it said that all of Israel crossed. Okay? Now, Israel fighting men was numbered at 601,000 people at this point. That's the men. That's the men who are aged 20 years or older. Okay? Not sure what the top number is there. But at this point, 600,000 men, all right, can cross the river. It said the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the center of the Jordan. They would cross it until everybody in all of Israel was across it. Then, when they landed on the other side of the, of the river, they camped out in front of a town called Jericho. That's chapters 1, 2, 3, 4. All right? And what happened was, is that the word traveled, that the water had been split for that nation to cross, and that all the kings on the coast and all the kings there in the center freaked out. They all freaked. Because they're like, man, if that won't stop them, what's, what's to stop them from owning us? Okay? And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. That's where we're at. All right? In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all of the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Okay? So their heart melted in fear. Now that phrase, when your heart melts, it means that you're in, a, you're in, you're in some kind of time where you're fixing to change your mind. Everyone in here has been in a situation where their heart has melted. Every one of us. If I was to ask you to pin it down and write it down on a piece of paper, you would be able to do it the last time that your heart actually melted. What happens in these scenarios is one of two things. A couple chapters later, you're going to see Joshua had the same situation so that his heart melted. When Joshua's heart melted, what he did was he got down on his knees and he changed his mind, right? We use that word repentance, okay? It's not a bad word. It means you changed your mind. In this story, we don't see that at all. Like these kings don't change their mind. And in fact, what they do is they harden their hearts and they come together to fight. Now, let me just kind of lay this into you real quick. As I said a few minutes ago, everyone in this room has had a point in their lives where they've had their heart has melted in them. What follows is always a big piece of your life. For instance, if you decide to let your heart melt and you change your mind, things in your life change. If you choose not to, the only other option you have is to harden your heart. And when you harden your heart, your heart becomes more and more calloused. And when it gets there, you're going to look back and say, how did I get so hard? About 15 years ago, I knew a girl who was really tender towards the things of God, like Jesus was doing some things in her life. It was, a, it, was, it was cool to see this thing play out because she was new in her faith. She hadn't fully learned her identity and who Jesus had made her to be. And so in this story, as this thing plays out, she's still finding her identity in what men think of her. So one night, things go a little too far. She ends up pregnant. In her mind, she's like, man, if I go on with this, if I go through with this, what guy is going to want me? Like, what guy is going to want me? She gets in her car and she travels about an hour and a half down the road and she goes to an abortion clinic. She's sitting on the table and because her heart is tender towards the things of God, she begins to weep there. The nurse walks in and says, you're not ready for this. Like we can't in good conscience proceed here because you are not in a good state of mind. So the girl packs her bags, she goes back home. Over the course of the next week, 
instead of going here, she starts going towards the other side and says, no guy's going to want me. No guy's going to want me. No guy's going to want me. So she hardens her heart. She gets back in the car. She drives back to that clinic, and she goes through with it. That decision would follow her about 15 years of her life. Now, the Lord would redeem it, right? The Lord would totally redeem this thing. But in that story of this thing playing out, it caused her heart to get hard. So if I can just encourage you, if I can just push on you, man, when you have the opportunity to let your heart melt and change your mind about things, you can either do that or you can callous it over, become very hard, and then keep traveling down that path because you will get to the point where you don't like who you are anymore. Yeah? And so we track down this path a little further. It says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All of those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. All right? So let's just pause on this. Let's just walk through this. The first thing that you see here is you see history playing out. When, when Israel left Egypt, they wandered around the desert for 40 years. Why? Because the men's hearts were rebellious, right? And so the Lord allowed them to walk around for 40 years because their hearts were rebellious. And in so doing, as the parents died, he used their sons to finish the story. Now, mom and dad, if I can just kind of push on you for a second, I want nothing more than for Mia and for Noah and for Abby and for Jake to pursue Christ with all their lives. I want them to do them because of me, not in spite of me. Does this make sense? And so when you're at home with your kids, man, when you're at home with them, like what kind of picture are you presenting to them before God? Because we have a picture here of the parents, mom and dad, presenting a picture of, of constant warring and nagging and complaining. And so the Lord let all those parents die off. And he used their sons. May that never be said about you. Yeah? May it never be said about you. And we travel now even further. I think this is just as important. It says, so he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Now, this part kind of gets me fired up a little bit. So let's, let's think through this, all right, just for a second. 601,000 fighting men between the ages of 20 and whatever. They just crossed the Jordan River. They are sitting at the foothill of their enemy. Like, they're fixing to go to war with Jericho. Now, what we know about Jericho is that Jericho was one of the strongest military cities in Canaan. Like, in that map, it was one of the strongest ones. And so in this moment, right, in this, say, in this season, you've got all 601,000 fighting men saying, we're going to sit here at the footstep of this 
and we're all going to get circumcised. Like, could you imagine that? Like, it makes, it makes little to no sense, right? Like, it makes no sense. So let's, let's unpack it for just a second, all right? What is the picture of circumcision? What, what does circumcision even mean, right? Like, what does that even mean? So if you back up to Genesis 17, the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, listen, he goes, this will be my covenant. This will be my promise with you that everyone will know you because you're circumcised. Like, that's going to be the sign, right? That's going to be the picture. And we watched Israel come out of Egypt, and all we hear about is how bad they were. The golden calf, the, mo- the moaning, the groaning, the complaining, all of this. They wish they could go back into Egypt, go back into slavery. They're like, the Lord's crazy. Like, we see all of this happening. But now we see something different. We see an entire nation stand up and say, circumcise me. I want everyone to know that I am not like those other nations. I want everyone to know that I am a child of God. I want everyone to know that I am a child of the Almighty Lord. And I want everyone to know that I'm going to listen to what he says and not do what everybody else does. This was an entire nation rising up to do this. And so one by one they would get circumcised. And here's the bigger picture. They know another story. Like if you want to walk through another story, this happened once before. A couple of the sons of Abraham... They tricked an entire city. They, they told this entire city, they're like, listen, if you want to be part of God's family, all you need to do is get, get circumcised. And the minute that they do, they go in there and they slaughter the entire town. And so can you imagine knowing that story, sitting at the foothill of Jericho and all fighting men being circumcised? Because here's what you just said. Here's what you just said in front of everyone. I can no longer protect myself. I can no longer protect my nation. I can't protect my kids. I can't protect my wife. Like I am totally vulnerable at the foot door of my enemy. But yet I choose to trust here. Why does Jericho never come out and slaughter them? Why does none of the fighting men of Jericho come out and slaughter them? They know that war is imminent. You've got an entire nation turning back towards God. Like this is known in, in theology circles as, ready, as, um, as radical obedience. Because their lives depended on it. And at the same time they stood up and said, I trust no matter what. Like, I trust no matter what. Like, what you're watching play out here is a physical picture of the New Testament scene of John 3. When the Lord comes and says, everyone must be born again, you're watching an entire nation become born again. And this is what happens right after. In verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So this place has been called Gilgal to this day. So here's what just played out. You have an entire nation, 600,000 men saying that I'm going to follow you, God, no matter what. Like if they come out and destroy me, I'm going to follow no matter what. And the Lord hears this and he's like, listen, because all of your hearts are turning towards me, here's what I'm going to do for you. I will no longer remember anything about Egypt or the wandering in the desert or the golden calf. Like all of that for me is over. And from now on, you will turn and you will start walking in the authority of who you've been created to be. And this is exactly what happens. Like you're witnessing all of Israel being born again. Like they're starting fresh into becoming the people they were called to be. 
And the cool thing about this is that it records it. It says, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at the Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Meaning that they sat down after they were after they were circumcised, they sat down because Jericho did not come after them. And they said, we remember how strong you are. We remember that you deliver your people. And remember that those of you who have, that our hearts are turned towards, that you will not walk away from. And so they sit down and they celebrate Passover and they start having this moment. And get a sense of this. You've got an entire nation turning their hearts towards God. Like if I can just be as honest with you as I can be, like deep down into my heart, like this is the desire of my heart where you see an entire church turn back. Like, quit going left and right, but you see an entire church. Like, there's this, there's this thing happening inside of the church where everybody's practicing radical obedience. Like, I want that. Like, I think it's why the Lord created me, because it's in me deep. It's why I'm such a believer in discipleship and doing hard things, because I know that they always produce God's glory in your life. And that's exactly what's playing out here. And so, in return, like, here's the cool thing. Like, because of all of this junk that's happening in Israel's life, because they're always screwing stuff up, he had to give them bread from heaven. Like, he had to provide for them. But it said on this day, he stops providing bread from heaven. And what starts happening? It says the ground starts feeding them. Like, that curse that happened in Genesis 3 starts going away. And the way that they were meant to romp begins to start playing out. And you can read this story. This is what it says. It says, the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. And so you see the curse beginning to become reversed. Why? Because Israel was learning their identity and who they were. Man, can I just tell you the biggest thing I see in the church is that, number one, very few want to return. Like, very few really want to turn their hearts back. And then the second thing I'd say is, is very few people really know their identity in Jesus. Like, they just, they, just, they just miss it. And so that other things tell them who they are. But what you just seen here was John chapter 3. In our lives, where we were all born again, where Jesus calls us to be born again, you're watching that play out in the hearts of Israel. Like, it's, it's no different like everything in the Old Testament plays out for the new. Israel is understanding who they are. And I would lean on you to understand who you are. Because this thing is much more powerful in your life than it was in theirs. Like you think they got to do some cool things? You should see what Jesus gets to say about you. Like if you have your heart turned towards him, like if you're born again and you've turned your heart towards him, you should see the things that Jesus says about you. Well, they took down 31 kings. You should see what he says about you. Where they started owning land right and left, you should see what he says about you. Where you see the land begin to produce fruit for them, you should see what he says about you. It's ten times more. And in this story, verse 13, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked him, Are you for us or for our enemies? So Joshua was near Jericho. He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, step one. What kind of posture are you in when you've got to raise your head up? Yeah? I would say for me, man, I'm either digging a ditch or I'm praying, right? And so we see Joshua in this picture, man. And he's like, he's, he says he looks up and he sees a man with a sword in his hand. 
Now, here's what's funny about this guy. Is if he looked like an Israelite, Joshua would have recognized him, right? If he looked like a Canaanite, Joshua would have also recognized him. But Joshua didn't recognize him at all. And so because the Lord had told Joshua to be strong and courageous, Joshua was kind of the protector of the flock. He was the leader of the nation. Joshua walks up to this man and he says, hey, are you for us? Are you against us? And you can imagine Joshua probably having his hand on his sword, waiting for this guy to say, hey, I'm one or the other. And whichever one he says, Joshua's got to draw. But here's what the man says. Verse 14, neither. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So let's just pause in this for a second. We've got a man standing with a sword. Joshua walks up to him, says, who are you for? And he says, neither. He said, but I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And it says, Joshua got down and he bowed down before him. Now, let's just stop in this for a second. Like, we know that the reason Satan fell from the sky was because he wanted what? Worship. He wanted somebody to worship him. And so we find out in Revelations that this isn't the way that it works. That angels who are dedicated to the service of God do not want the worship of men. It's not what they're made for. It's not what they're created to do. They don't want any man worshiping them. In fact, it says that the angels are a little bit less than you are. But yet here we see Joshua bowing down to this angel. He says, I'm the angel, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. We see Joshua bowing down to him. So there's something up right there. Number two, he doesn't recognize him. He's neither man, he's neither Canaanite nor Israelite, and yet he's got a sword in his hand. Number three, he says, what would you have me do? And he says, take off your shoes, for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. You ever remember hearing that before? You ever heard that before? Starting to ring a bell? Moses. Exactly. And so Moses says the same thing. He tells, when Moses at the burning bush, that burning bush says, I am. Says, that's his word for saying, I existed before, now, and forever. And he says, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing is on holy ground. Who is this guy? It's Jesus. He is Jesus in the flesh. Right? And that's why when Joshua meets him and he says, are you for me or against me? He said, neither. He's like, I'm neither. Like, this is the way Jesus rolls. Like, in our minds, we're like, man, Jesus is always for us. There's some truth to that, but Jesus is for himself. Jesus is for the house of the Lord. He's for his glory. And what he says to you and me, he goes, are you for me? That's his response to Joshua. He's like, are you for me? Because if you're for me, then let's go do this thing. But if you're not for me, he's like, man, there's a whole other story playing out for you that doesn't involve anything in this book. And Joshua's response to him was, I am for you. We see this because he bows down. Now, why is this so important? Like, why does Jesus need to show up at this point? Like, what is the key here? Because for the first time, you see an entire nation turning their hearts towards the Lord to the point where they trusted him with their lives. And now he was asking the leader of that nation to do the same. Because you see, Israel couldn't own anybody until Israel realized that they had a king. And the leader of Israel couldn't lead anything until the leader of Israel realized that he was being led by the king. And the moment that those two things came into play, the Lord's like, 
it's time for us to go. He goes, I'm going to go before you in all of these battles. You're fixing to go 31 and 1. And you would have gone 31 and 0 had it not been for the sin of Achan. But you're fixing to go 31 and 1. Like you're fixing to start historically, not biblically, but historically, the largest military campaign ever known on the face of the earth. And you will win every time in seven years. And people will wonder how you did it all the rest of their lives. It's why we talk about it today. How did it happen? Because the entire nation had a king. And the leader of that nation had one too. And the moment those two things came into alignment, this thing started to play out. And so you're asking me, like, Chris, like, how does this play out? Like, how does this work? All right? Remember, we talked about there doesn't do any good to give you information without application. It doesn't work that way. Like, the problem with the local church is that we give information every Sunday, and we just expect or anticipate that something's going to happen with it. When we know from learning that information alone does not cause any movement in people's lives, information has to be followed by some type of application. And so here's how we're going to do this. I'm just going to show you how this gets applied right? Somebody taught this to me in 2003. I use it, and I'm going to teach it to you so that one day maybe you can use it with somebody else, all right? In your life, you always have a decision to make about something, always, right? We call them life, life decisions. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be over drugs. It can be over sex. It can be over marriage. It can be over homosexuality. It can be over attending a local church. It can be like you name it, a husband's role, the father's role, the mother's role. Like you have a decision about all of these things every day, right? You decide what you do with your money. Like it never ends. Same story he told Joshua. He's like, man, you're fixing to have to make a lot of decisions about a lot of stuff, right? And then he tells Joshua what? Be strong and courageous. You follow my law, it will come to pass, right? The whole picture of Deuteronomy, like if you want to know how Deuteronomy goes, there's only two parts to it. Deuteronomy is called the Deuteronomistic theme, all right? If you want to write that down, feel free. But here's what it means. It's like if you obey me, like if you listen to what I say, blessings will always follow you. If you choose to do the direct opposite, a curse will always follow you. This is how it works. It doesn't doesn't move to the left or the right, right? And so in Joshua, he says the exact same thing. He's like, listen, I'm going to make you the leader of this nation. If you will be strong and courageous, meaning if you will make the right decisions, like if you obey me, you will inhabit all of this land. If you choose not to, that land will vomit you out like it's vomiting everyone else. And he says the same to you and I. And so you put whatever you want to in this box, like just start lowering it up. Just, just name whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Because the next part is the hard part. It's like, what do I do with this? Like, what do I do with this? Like, I get, I get two choices here. I can go one of two directions. Like, this isn't brain surgery. You can either be strong and courageous, and you can say, this is what the Lord says about it, and this is what I'm going to do. Or you can say, you know what? I choose not that, and I'm going to do what I think, or I'm going to do what I feel. All right? So when you use those words, I think or I feel, what that automatically says is, man, I don't know what God says about this, and so I'm not going to do it. And even by default, it doesn't escape. You will not escape that a curse follows this. And so if you put money in there and say, okay, here's what God says about money. Malachi 3 says, listen, we take 10% of our money and we give it somewhere. And I'm believing that when I do that, that the Lord is going to bless me. And when he does, it's going to lend me my joy. Or I can say just the opposite. I think or I feel that I don't want to do that. And it's not going to hurt anybody. When it comes to marriage, I can go home to my wife, Rachel, and I say, well, 
I think or I feel that you should do whatever I want to do. That whenever I'm mad, you should meet my needs. And whenever I'm happy, you should meet my needs. Or I can say what Jesus says about my marriage and says, listen, I treat her as the weaker, as the weaker spouse. And I love her like Christ gave his life up for the church. And that her needs come before mine. And that my feet are the last ones to get in bed. Like I treat her this way. And I choose whether I want the blessing or the curse. It doesn't change. We can talk about sex. We can put sex in the box. I choose, right? What Jesus said is that that is defined between a man and a woman for marriage. And if you do this, a blessing will follow you. Or I think or I feel like I want to do it the other way. And he's like, listen, you do that and it will come to haunt you. And this is how this thing plays out. And so what happens is a lot of you are like, man, Chris, like in my decision making, I'm like, I think I've chosen the wrong thing, but I still feel like it's going okay. I still feel like it's doing okay. I feel like I'm doing all right here. Man, can I just tell you what they call that in theology circles? Like, if God can't lie, right, just because you don't feel the consequences of it right now does not mean that you are not under the active, passive wrath of God. That's what it means. Because God says he's clear. He's like, listen, if you do what I say, blessings will follow you. And when you do that, that blessing will end up in joy in your life. And if you choose to not do what I say, the curse is going to follow you. Now, here's the deal. Here's the beauty of Christ. He'll redeem all of that. He'll redeem it all. But only after you've paid the price for the curse that follows along with it. And this is how this thing works. This is how this thing plays out. It's not hard. It's not hard. It's actually pretty simple. The question becomes is, who do you believe? Like, do you believe that the creator of the universe actually put this in place? Or do you believe that in your 25, 35, 45 years of living that you're smarter than him? Like, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like, who's lied to you more than you have? Like, who's, who's lied to you more than you have? And so in, in playing that out, man, this is why the Lord gives us his law. It's why David and it's why Abraham and it's why Moses, it's why they loved his law. It's why Jesus came and said, I'm not here to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So in my heart, man, I'm like, what does it look like? Like, what does it look like for an entire church to return to the Lord? Like, what does it look like, man, to say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to follow this path out. Like, what does it look like to do that? Like, the reason that Jesus went to the cross is because he did this, right? The, reasons that, the reason that Moses has got tons of pages in here is because he did this. The reason that David walked out his life like he did is because he's in this. The reason that Solomon's life ended the way it did, like Solomon's life did not end well, is because he chose the left-hand side at the end. At the beginning of his life, he chose the right-hand side. On the end of his life, he chose the left-hand side. And my question to you is, which one do you want you choose? Like, which one do you choose? Like, would you be so bold as to even write it down and say, man, I'm going to give it a shot. Like, try the Lord in this. Like, he says, listen, he goes, in this story, like if my word is true and you cannot back me off, like isn't it worth a try? An entire nation got circumcised at the foothill of battle because they believed this. Now, depending on what you believe about the Bible, man, where you think it's authoritative or whether you don't think it's authoritative, I, I don't know. But here's, here's some archaeology for you, all right? Here's what I learned about archaeology this, this week is if, if your heart is turned towards the Bible, when you're done, you're going to have a bias towards that, okay, in your archaeology findings. If your heart is turned away from the Bible, in the end, your conclusion will have an archaeology 
bias towards that as well. So here's the deal. Here's where they combine. Three people, three major sects travel to this land to find the, the, the wall of Jericho. Three major funded projects. Here's where they agree. Number one, Jericho existed. There's no doubt about that. Number two, the city was maximally fortified. Like the walls that were built around it were massive. Number three, whatever happened there, like they don't know, but whatever happened, the inhabitants left in such a way that their food was still there. Number four, those fortified walls fell down. They likened it to an earthquake because they weren't beat down. Like there were no holes in them. They basically just fell outwards and they created a ramp into the city, which is exactly what Joshua 7 says. Number five, the sixth city was not plundered, which is exactly what they told to do in Joshua 7. And then number six, the city was burned down, which is exactly what played out in Joshua 7. My friends, choose today who you will trust, right? What we've decided to do, man, is we're just going to kind of leave it here and like we're going to set communion up for you guys to take. Here's where you may end up, right? You may be in a point where you're like, I need, to, I need to change my mind about some stuff. Like, I seriously need to change my mind about stuff. Take communion then. Because that's where we do it. Like, there's no better place of grace than communion. You get that? Number two, you may be in a place where you're like, dude, I've just walked away from the Lord for a long time. Like, I haven't heard his voice or sat with him in a long time. Then take communion. There's a lot of grace for you there at that place. Right? Number three, you may be living this out. Like you may be going, dude, I'm living my life out as best as I know. Like every decision that I'm making, I am putting God's word to it and then saying this is how it works. And man, if that's you, then take communion and joyful for God's redemptive work in your life. Right? Knowing that he's going to come and restore all things when it gets here. Like this is the beauty of the gospel. Like it fits all things. My heart, like my heart is for you. And to know his will for your life. Man, to not veer to the left or to the right, but to walk in a way, man, where you become a vessel of glory for Him only because of radical obedience produced that in your life. You cannot be a glory piece for the Lord until radical obedience has caused it in you. Otherwise, you're just trying to believe in something. And that's too hard. It's too hard just to believe in something. I dare you. Give Him a piece of your life in radical obedience and watch what He does then you'll have something to believe in. I promise that. Better yet, He does. So I'm going to pray for you. We'll let communion roll. Just take it at your leisure, all right? Man, and enjoy Him. Like, enjoy Him. The same God that was in Genesis that created it is the same God that was at the burning bush. Is the same God that was there with Joseph in the pit. Is the same God that appeared to Joshua right here. The same God that put on flesh and went to the cross for you. And is the same God who, when he comes in Revelations, will come back with the sword. The beauty of Joshua is that he is a preeminent picture of who Christ is. Like he is the warrior piece of Jesus. Like he's the lion of him. We saw the lamb. But Joshua is a preeminent picture of the lion of him. It's why he was holding a sword. Because he needs you to know that he's not all grace. Why he is full of it. He is also full of the other, meaning that when he returns, that every knee will bow. And there will come a time when the Lord calls his people home and he's calling you home into repentance towards him. Because when he comes back, there's not a chance. You say, I think or I feel when he comes home, you're done. As simple as that, you're done. It says when he appears in the sky, knees will break. 
if today is the day that you hear his voice, you're not hard in your heart, wipe off the callous. Let your heart melt. You can become like the kings and put your fist against him. Or you can become like Joshua, man, and bow your head. Either way, it doesn't change the fact that he's the Lord. The question I leave you with, is he for you or against you? Neither. Are you for him or against him? Because he will finish his story. And I want you to be on the right side of that. Father, you are good. Praise your name for this time and the power and the authority of your word. Lord, I would ask for all the hearts in here that if they're melting before you, Father, then let them do communion in a way that honors you. Whether through repentance or with joyfulness, like let them rejoice. Father, you are good. Thank you for the power of your word. And everyone in this house said,